You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. We're back, members of the jury, and happy Freedom Friday. Today we have an amazing trial breakdown and even an insight into the process after trial when things don't go accordingly. We have an amazing guest who is going to give us both phases in excellent detail, and we're really excited to hear from him. Uh, joining us today is Deputy Public Defender Tom. Tom, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Good Friday uh, to you, members of uh, members of the jury listeners. My name is Tom. Tom, we really appreciate you reaching out. You know, for me, I I, I love this connection of being able to communicate and relate with public defenders from across the country. There are so many different forums and ways for us to connect. And I was able to meet Tom in in one of these arenas. And I'm, I'm so excited to just see how life is in their issues, despite being elsewhere. So Tom, uh, I want to get into the facts of the case. Um, I know you gave me a little bit of insight, but aside from the nature of the charges, I don't know anything like the members of our jurors listening in. So why don't you take us to the case? What what happened in this situation? Okay. So this case, this is a case that I got in 2017. The incident that it sprung from was in 2012, actually, if, I, if I'm recalling correctly. So basically, should I go into the facts of the case? In a second, because I actually have a quick question about that. And so did that mean their the initial filing didn't happen until 2017? And so there kind of essentially was a five-year process of investigating before they filed charges? There was a process of investigation that lasted a few days um, and then a five-year delay in filing charges. Just because they wanted to sit on them? I can I can uh, elaborate on that. Oh, okay. Please, I'll, I'll stop interrupting. And yeah, t- take us to the case. Give us. Um, well, first, um, ultimately, give give us the breakdown of the complaint or information, and, and then kind of go into the the factual basis as to how we got there. Okay, my client was charged with two counts of attempted murder. Uh, he had a co-defendant who was his cousin. His cousin pled out pretty early on. So it, it was mostly just my client and I. The charges were, uh, so two counts of attempted murder to both counts, a firearm allegation, uh, like personal use, discharge of a firearm causing great bodily injury. And there was a gang allegation, uh, which increases the, the penalties pretty significantly. And, and those were the main charges. Uh, there, there are a couple of ones that aren't, aren't really worth addressing, but um, yeah, attempted murder, attempted murder, gang, gun. Like those are the big, those are the big three. 
<laughs> exactly. And, and that's what we've, we've talked about that. Sometimes, you know, it, there might be some other minor charges where you, you aren't necessarily going to trial to even factually dispute them, but they're so insignificant to, to the greater charges. And so th- even though there might be their throwaway offenses, it, it's for the principal cause. And so, yeah, that we actually, that's, let's keep it to the, the big, the big stuff. Yeah. So, um, a little bit of background. Um, this incident takes place in 2012. No charges are filed until about 2017. So I so I don't meet the client until 2017. He's living his life. 2014, uh, he did pick up uh, some some kind of shooting charge where he was represented by private counsel, and he pled to that and received um, a 14-year suspended state prison term. So he's placed on probation with 14 years hanging over his head. Like he, you know, technically he could pick up driving on a suspended license, 14 years in prison. case that I have since it happened in 2012 actually would not trigger that uh, suspended state prison since the incident happened before he was placed on probation. Basically, my guy was alleged to have been a, a pretty known gangster in his town. The The police were just gunning for him. So they, they pick him up on a CBS um, dagger case. Like they, they see him driving a, a, a beat up van. They pull him over for some pretext, you know, traffic violation, um, and they find uh, a knife uh, either in the van or on his person. Uh, I don't don't recall, but that was going to be the the triggering case for the um, suspended state prison. And then I think speculation, um, but just to add additional pressure to have him. Um, admit the probation violation and send him off to prison, they file this case from the uh, 2012 incident. So I meet my client um, in court for the first time. And the way it works in our jurisdiction is um, there are two court dates when it comes to the preliminary hearing. Do your listeners know the prelim- what a preliminary hearing is? Yeah, we've had a couple episodes where we've been able to explain that. But if there's okay, so a, the important part about the case, yeah. Okay. So um, basically the way it works in my jurisdiction is someone gets arraigned. Um, they generally do not waive time at the arraignment. So they're entitled to a prelim within 10 court days. Um, so they will set two court dates after arraignment. Preliminary hearing confirmation, where you can show up and say either we're ready or we're not ready. Um, and then a couple days later, the actual preliminary hearing. So I meet my client for the first time. I believe at that point, like I was probably missing discovery. Um, Obviously it's a life exposure case. Um, And I was like, we should probably waive time here. (laughs) You know, Uh, I want to, before we go to prelim, I want to have all the information, talk to you, that sort of thing. And he's just like, nope, not going to do it, not waving time. 
he's he says like go talk to my mom she's got some paperwork um talk to the mom she hands me this like thick stack of paperwork and she's telling me all about how the cops are harassing him and, and everything um she tells me like this whole life story that i i've uh, you know i can't fully digest there you know in court i've got probably 10 other clients on for for prelim um so he's, he's one of many uh on that day anyway i look at the paperwork here's where like the kind of palace intrigue comes in somehow uh i got a hold of the internal district attorney uh charging decision <laughs> on the 2012 case where it's where it's there's a big old stamp on it that says rejected okay interesting so so in 2012 uh, after the incident um investigated by the police and it was a relatively short investigation uh maybe a few days a week at most probably um they for the cops forward all that information to the DA's office. That's the regular course of business. Rejected. Sent back for further investigation. Um, and I don't think that they did much further investigation. I, I think there was maybe processing of fingerprints or, you know, like some some other kind of nickel dime stuff, but they did pretty much 90% of their investigation, you know, already. Um rejected for prosecution four or five times and i had and his, my client's mom provided me with that paperwork so uh this is the only time that's ever happened um it seems that the, the these letters are these letters getting mailed to them or it seems that my client got these documents essentially on accident i i think what it was if memory serves is that he asked his probation officer for just everything about his case and they somehow that was in probation's possession and they gave it to him um i've never seen that before or since yeah that's so interesting because i know i've in in my jurisdiction so, like people can get notice of non-files um, like after they've been arrested and maybe they'll show up to their like initial court date on like a citation or something like that. And, and then on that day, they can get a notice of non-file because to sh prove that they like came and like appear like they were supposed to, but there were no charges. But yeah, I, not not to the extent where like they get the, <laughs> the notice of rejection. So that's just so interesting how they actually came a hold of them. Yeah, so... When you when you went through the documents, um, it got a little ambiguous as to whether it was rejected four times or five. I, I think that there was a reasonable argument for for either number, but also three or four different um, district attorneys reviewed that case and rejected it. So it wasn't just one DA who was saying this case isn't good enough to go to trial it, it was a good three or four different individuals so meter is 
you know, hitting red. <laughs> Prosecutor who was now bringing the case, I, I think it was an in-chambers discussion, but but I was definitely harping on this, and I I filed motions to dismiss based on it. Um, and this particular prosecutor um, who was bringing the case now, but <laughs> she basically said that, well, she's an expert gang prosecutor, and you know she knows the law better than all these you know colleagues of hers. So she's going to bring the case. Ultimately, we go to trial. There were like three different motions to to dismiss. All of them, of course, denied. Uh, so we go to trial. The factual um, circumstances of the case are essentially that there was a minor car accident. So there was the um, alleged victim's car behind my client's car. My client stopped at a stop sign and the, the alleged victims like just sort of bumper kissed them, you know, like minor little fender bender. I don't think there was any damage to either car. Yeah, like a bumper tap. Yeah. And from my client's car and there were um, two people at the time, they get out uh, the, the alleged victims from the car behind them. Actually, at the time, it was one dude. This is one alleged victim at this time. He gets out of the car. I think he gets punched in the face. There's a scuffle. Words are exchanged. They ultimately, like, go their separate ways. Um, later in the day, the alleged victim uh, went to a local convenience store. And the way he tells it, is that he was just telling his friend about what happened. And then he happened to see my client's car drive down the road. And he says, oh, he's, that's, that's them. Let's go follow them. When you look at you know, this, this friend that the alleged victim went and spoke with, when you see him in the courtroom, he's huge. How, how's the language policy on this podcast oh we're explicit oh great okay he's fucking huge he's fucking huge like no you were not just telling your friend about what happened like you were getting muscle you were getting some some muscle backup the the two the, the one alleged victim and, and the soon-to-be second alleged victim get in the car. They follow my guy's car around. At that point, there were three people um, in my client's car. Two in the front, one in the back. Pri prior to that, it had just been the two of them. Um, alleged victims lose uh client's car. Um client's car ends up behind them so now they're being followed they go out of this town into sort of the um countryside i guess you could call it like sparsely populated there's um there's like a cemetery out there and um a shooting happens at this sort of remote intersection and uh one of the guys 
uh, one of the alleged victims. Uh, I think he got his hand grazed by a bullet. Um, that was the only injury um, in this whole thing. Um, the after the shooting, the two cars go their separate ways. Let me ask: It was uh, was there only like one shot fired, or were there's their allegations or evidence like of multiple shots fired multiple multiple shots were fired like multiple shell casings were discovered at the intersection oh wow okay the alleged victims um car had multiple uh bullet holes um so yeah like yeah so there there was like a reasonable dispute that that some sort of altercation right um, but it was not clear who did the shooting. There was contradictory testimony from the alleged victims as to whether it was, um, the passenger or, um, the, the new third guy who showed up in the backseat. Long story short, like the, the alleged victims, they, they, they pull over in a more populated area. They flag down a police officer. They tell them, uh, what had just happened investigation is going they eventually i my my guy to um the car the this um white taurus was, was uh my my client's car it was his girlfriend's car anyway and he was associated with the car in the police uh records so ultimately um and uh charged and um you know we we go to trial it sounds like and 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 all of that investigation you said was initially done back in 2012 and and that's when they they were even able to attach him to the car back in 2012 okay yes all this happens within a few days of the incident. And, and so at, back in 2012, they have the car, quote unquote, at the scene of the crime. They have what they believe is evidence that he was driving the car and at the scene. There was, but you, if I heard you correctly, the contradiction between who the shooter was was one of the two passengers. And if I'm understanding what you're saying, your client was the driver. Uh, yes. Okay. Great. So, no, I think that I was able to digest all of that as well. So we go to openings. Um, You know, we had an opportunity to discuss a little bit uh, before we started recording that there weren't really too many evidentiary issues. And, you know, after hearing that, I'm, you know, was there anything with regards to the timing, though, or I guess with, you know, did that play a factor with any of the potential evidence that was that they were seeking to admit, like, were the, did they still have the exact same two victims from all those years ago? Shockingly, they did. Um, I, I was, wow. yeah, I was surprised. One of them had left town for a bit, um, like a, f- a few years, but was back. Um, and the other guy, I, I think, had never left. I think Muscles had uh, never left. Um, I love that nickname. So. The the original alleged victim, the one the guy who went and got 
uh, muscles were legitimately his, his nickname was cowboy because he, he wore like very flamboyant. Imagine like, like it's a cross between like a cowboy and Liberace, like rhinestones, big old, you know, 10 gallon hat. But he was just like a field worker with just a very like eccentric, uh, sense of style. Um, so we got the alleged victims, cowboy and muscles. Tom, let me ask you real quickly, because after you say that too, I'm actually kind of surprised that they went with attempted murder as opposed to you know assault with the deadly weapon. Did did you get that sense that there was some overcharging too, or? Oh, definitely. Okay. Um, it's in my jurisdiction. I mean, it's overcharging central. I, I think that's a lot of jurisdictions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as far as like the trial goes, um, like, of course, I wanted to bifurcate the the gang allegation away from the uh, underlying facts that was denied. Um, and let's see. Um, so I ended up going with um, I, conceding that my guy was a gang member, like, all this inflammatory gang stuff was going to come in. I tried to in limit out, but obviously like, you know, it comes in. So his, his like homemade rap videos, um, his, um, prior contacts where he like admits to it. I have to ask, <laughs> especially in light of what's going on with like, you know, young thug and the, and the rappers in Georgia who, you know, they're using the evidence uh, of their songs against him. Were any of his like rap videos in some way lyrically connected to factually like the, the, the you know, to the case? Um, no, not to the case, but um, they were about like the quote unquote gang lifestyle in general right. okay. um the the one that sticks out in my head was called putting in work um and of course the gang expert that the um district attorney ended up calling was you know went into great uh detail about what putting in work means and how it's a requirement of the gang and stuff and and that one was actually a catchy tune <laughs> was it yeah. i love when they're actually not bad like you know at least it like that part's enjoyable like not only yeah. would it be sucky to have it be like shitty evidence but then also to be like a shitty song like you know yeah that one i was like oh, yeah. i told my client too i was like hey man you know i got that video it's like it's not bad <laughs> um that's awesome so i went in conceding that my client's a gang member uh you know like look you're gonna hear all this evidence him in the courtroom he's got the four dots tattooed on his face like we get it you know he's he's a gang member but uh going off uh the defense was basically he might have been a gang member but the actual evidence like connecting him to this crime was kind of weak and um even if you find that he did do it it was not gang related during that initial uh scuffle that um that cowboy and the the uh, two people in the car got into that initial bumper kiss nobody was like a gang name nobody was flashing gang signs or colors 
Nobody was dressed distinctively in a gang color. Um, and same thing for the shooting incident. Like, no, nobody said it. Nobody hollered a gang name, made signs, or anything like, like, like that. Were the alleged victims known to be in any kind of gangs, or was that ever, like, a issue that came up? The only, um, that came up with muscles a little bit. Because muscles like happen to be wearing blue and my client's gang associates with red, but never any to suggest that they thought that muscles was a rival gang member and take one look at cowboy and you're like, man, I don't, I don't know any gang that dresses like that. <laughs> okay, makes sense. All right, so then take us to the opening statements. What were some of the things that the prosecutor, you know, tried to highlight to the members of the juries for their point of view? And then what was your goal and message to the members of the juries during your opening statement? Um, I think the, the DA's opening statement was, honestly, it was pretty bland like just pretty vanilla um to, to my recollection she was just like you're gonna hear this evidence you're gonna hear that evidence um you're gonna and that's why at the end of the day we're gonna ask you to convict this guy of all the charges and, and mine was highlighting what the weaknesses are going to be or at least um hinting at them and like getting, getting the jurors to be like, Oh, well, what, what, you know, gunshot residue, like that's, you know, there's something weak going on there. Like, um, you know, getting right out in front of the gang stuff, uh, saying, Hey, you know, he's a gang member. No one is, um, going to dispute that. Uh, I kind of felt like it would be, um, I would lose cre credibility, you know, if I was to argue that my guy with, you know, a bunch of pretty convincing gang tattoos all over his body and, and rap videos and stuff that, and a record, you know, that they're going to hear about, um, wasn't a gang member. So just get out in front of that. That sounds like a really smart strategy. And one that I know we've encouraged on the show in the past, just because, you know, you're going to have bad facts in a case if you didn't you wouldn't be having a case. And so I think you, you really hit the nail on the head with the maintaining your credibility with the jurors and just honing into it. Because at the end of the day with, as it relates to the charges, you're right in that just because it's not unlawful quote unquote to be in a gang. It's when you commit crimes in the furtherance of it. And so just because he may be in a gang doesn't necessarily mean that everything that everything that he does is for the purpose of advancing that lifestyle or his gang as a total. So I think that that's, that's really smart and, and an encourageable strategy to do an opening and especially to then also plant the questions uh, that you don't think can ever be answered by the prosecution throughout the trial. So that sounds like a really smart strategy. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember if this happened in the prelim or in the trial, but, um, at one point, I maybe it happened in the first trial, but the the gang expert cleaned it up in the second in the retrial. But you know, um, the gang expert was testifying for for the listeners. Um, 
a, the DA can put up a quote unquote gang expert as if they're like a scientist, as if they're like a physicist or um, something of that nature. And then they can just say basically whatever they want about gangs and how they work. Um, it's really inflammatory and unfair, <laughs> but they're allowed to do it. I think I got the gang member to say that, well, his position was every crime that a gang member commits is for the benefit of the gang. And I'm like, drunk in public, domestic violence. That's really, those are really good. Some of those will actually get you killed by your fellow gang members. Like, right. Fuck off. You know, um, I'm pretty sure he stepped in that trap in the first trial and, and cleaned it up in the second where he was like, well, not everything such as domestic violence or child molestation. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, I think that's somewhat of a pattern that in my opinion, law enforcement tend to have is, is really just try to oversell their position. And, and I understand that, you know, police officers get a lot of slack and criticism, but like they're just, they're human. They're going to make mistakes. And I, I just, you know, where you address the, the bad facts, I, I think that they have a hard time doing that in my opinion on the stand. I would agree. I, I think that they um, try to spin, they try to spin everything in a positive way. Um, and like if the, if a, you have a couple of critical thinkers on the jury, you can really point that out and, and uh, raise doubt that way. So basically, I, my primary argument was like, not my guy didn't do it because he wasn't going to testify. And there wasn't really any great like self-defense argument to be made. Um, so eyewitness identification was pretty weak. I mean, they the police did a you know photo lineup with my guy and I, I think that they they identified him, but not like 100%. They're like, uh, 80% sure or something, you know, something to that effect. And, you know, of course there was the, um, discrepancy about like who did the shooting. It just sounds like so many like unanswered questions, uh, that I, I'm interested to see, you know, what, what their proposed answers were. So there was my client invoked, he was a pretty smart guy. Um, so he invoked and I, I, his co-defendant did too. So there were no issues with their statements um, coming in or anything. And we did get into some uh, forensics, which was the first, I want to say it was the first time that I had to deal with that in any um, extensive way. And that was with um, gunshot residue. So did do a gunshot residue swab of uh, my client's hands. Um, when he was arrested and he was arrested on this case, I want to say within 24 hours, maybe within 48 hours of, of the incident pretty quick. Um, and what the department of justice analyst explained, which is true, was that he really liked the DOJ person. Like they weren't just totally in the bag for the DA. Like they were a real scientist. And they said, hey, like, I'm not going to call this gunshot residue because gunshot residue is made up primarily of three elements, lead, barium, and antimony. 
So when we have those three present, um, we call it like probable gunshot residue or possible gunshot residue. But because all three of those elements exist in the world, like you could have them on your hand and have it not be gunshot residue. In my client's case, they found one particle on each hand that only contained two of the three elements. I can't remember which one was missing at this point, but like, let's say it was lead and barium and no antimony. Um, so I made a lot of hay about that. And I would say that was kind of the majority of the evidence. They did call, uh, the district attorney did call um, my client's uh, fiance to the stand because she was in, the owner of the car. Um, and she unfortunately spoke to the police uh, when, when they were in the process of investigation. And she had told them like, when they initially arrived uh, to ask about where my client was and where the car was, you know, she was like, well, I don't know. Like we broke up three days ago, but then immediately contradicted that with like, Oh, but I just saw him. And, you know, it was not good. She did not do my client any favors. Well, she called in. Now I heard you say there was two trials and I'll kind of have you break that down for us here in a second, but was she called in both of the trials? I believe she was. Okay. And I would say that, um, the second, like the retrial was pretty much a rehash of the first one. Like for everything I'm telling you. Yeah. That was going to be my, that, that was going to be my question was, was there any significance or substantive change in any type of evidence that they presented in the, in the second trial? It was the same. Did you feel that your defense had been disadvantaged at all now since you had already exposed it to them during the first trial? Yeah, I, w- I would say so. Um, and again, I didn't really have anything else to go with. You know, it w- it's, you know, for, I'm, I'm sure your audience knows, like, basically with what it boils down to when it comes to a defense is either, like, I didn't do it, or yeah, I did it, but some sort of legal excuse that you know excuses your actions um such as self-defense and i you know just didn't really have a way to put that on so yeah so fiance testifies definitely looks like she's covering for my client um that no no way around it you know it looked pretty sketchy and bad (laughs) and i really thought that the so we get to closing argument and well, let me let me interrupt you right before you get there, because I wanted to ask you real quickly, though, what was some of the evidence that you felt was critical that you were able to get out throughout the trials that, you know, ultimately played a role in, you know, the just verdict that you believe this case ultimately concludes with? You know, I know that you had briefly mentioned that the first trial and ended with a hang and that the second one uh, didn't go our way. But throughout those trials, what were some of the more critical pieces of evidence that you really made sure to elicit? I would say it was just the, 
I didn't have one particular thing to 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 hammer on. Like I, I don't think that there was like a silver bullet, so to speak. Um, so I I took the um, the strategy of doing like death by a thousand cuts, right? Just point out the weakness in the identification, point out the weakness in the gunshot residue. Um, I think that um, probably like the biggest ones, I mean, they didn't find any spent ammunition in the car. Um, and obviously like my client didn't make a statement. Um, so it was, so my strategy was basically yeah, just to, raise raise all these little bits of doubt and try and try and like pick off some jurors at either of the trials did any of the victims then say your client was the one who ultimately shot them i guess i never re came back and connected that like originally they had told the police it was one of the passengers and then did that then change that trial where they did say it was your client or no no they they pretty well stuck to their um initial statements about like well like one of them thought it was a passenger in the front the other thought it was a passenger in the back um and yeah they didn't really change anything uh substantially or substantively um there may have been a few details but again it was you know five years later or something so that's so interesting okay so we have this in encounter in 2012 with, you know, your client, his friends, and uh, a victim who started the whole thing by bumper tapping your client and then following him after what I'm going to assume he got beat up after the first, the bumper tap that he did. And, <laughs> and then... We have these trials where there's a lot of questionable evidence. I think that's solidified by the hung jury that rendered in 2017. And then unfortunately during the retrial that ended, did, what happened in, in that ultimate retrial? Was he then, then unfortunately convicted of all, all charges? Um, yes. So first trial, um, I, I think that, uh, and it pains me to say it, but I thought the DA had um, a very effective closing argument. Um, since my strategy was to just pick at every little thing, um, she did this thing where she like got a bunch of popsicle sticks and put them together and was like, you know, um, showed like that, how to explain it? Like, like nobody's that unlucky kind of, one or two of these things could be explained away, but when when you get to the weight of the of the evidence, even with the doubt uh, that I thought I was able to raise, well, that I was able to raise at the first one, that no one could really be that unlucky. And I was to the retrial. It hung it hung ten to two, by the way. It picked off two two people. To the retrial, I was like, like I don't know what i'm gonna say about that like in my closing um but she ended up not going with it um she didn't do the same thing which i honestly thought was pretty effective um and 
you know, great, fine. But, you know, unfortunately, they they convicted that time around. I should say, um, in between the two trials, so trial hangs, trial hangs, go back to negotiations about potential settlement. And um, the second time around, um, the DA was willing to offer 20 years package deal for everything. So that would include the the 14 years that was previously stayed over his head. So like, I, I yeah, so I, I told like, hey, you know, that's not bad. You know, like it hung 10 to 2 made them work for it. You got 14 years hanging over your head anyway, which you're going to get because of the BS, like Dirk Dagger case. Like, uh, you know, you're a young man. It's, it's six additional years. Don't get me wrong. I would not want to do six additional years in prison, but reading the tea leaves here might be a pretty good pretty good resolution for you and he said no so we went to trial again were they still adamant about him being convicted for attempted murder i think that they were uh, i can't recall if um we must have come to a different charge because you can't get just six years um so i think that their main concern was they didn't want my guy on the street it was a kind of a small town they felt that my guy was like a bad dude and a troublemaker and they just wanted him off the streets for a decade or two. And I was like, you know, if a client had come in with this case or something similar and the DA was like going to offer six years on it, I'd tell my client, I'm like, Hey man, like either there's something really, really wrong with their case or an amazing offer that you need to grab and run with it. Um, but yeah, he didn't want to do that. So we, we do the retrial and the second trial goes basically the same um, evidence wise. The jury convicted had to go out in the hall, tell his fiance and his mom, like what had just happened. And how, you know, he was looking at, you know, many, many decades to life and, and realistically was probably not, you know, going to get out of prison. Um, and man, his fiance, like, let out this, this wail, this like animal scream that like haunts me. It was the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. Like the just the pain that that she was in. They I learned that they actually locked down the courthouse when she screamed because they thought like the bailiffs thought maybe there was some sort of you know horrible crime occurring in the hallways, but they locked all the courtrooms down. Um, someone. So yeah, someone called nine one one and got because um, we thought maybe she was having a panic attack or something. Um, uh, and so an ambulance came with a couple of paramedics, and I really wish I had like one of their 
contact information or something because they did an amazing job of like calming her down. Like, um, it just blew me away. I was very impressed by the the paramedics and how they, you know, they figured out what was going on. Like I, I kind of explained the situation to them and, and they gave her a pep talk about, you know, like how she's got to be strong for her kids and, and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, just kind of brought her back to us, which was nice. That's always the a, a part of the trials that a lot of people don't really conceptualize is is that it's not just the person on trial who's affected. Um, that everybody who's charged with crimes is you know brother, sister, mother, father, somebody to somebody, and. Um, a lot of times, you know, even even in my opinion, even if the person did do commit a crime, it's not easy for their loved ones, and they sh- those feelings need to be addressed. And oftentimes, especially as public defenders, you, you know, we we bear that burden, and, and I think we're happy to, and we know it's part of the job. So I think that that does sound like a a great situation to how that ends, because unfortunately, as I'm sure people are aware, like it doesn't always go that way when people have emotional outbursts to negative results in court, especially when the people having the outbursts are people of color. It's more so seen as aspects of aggression or retaliation as a, as a, instead of a true, just emotional like tsunami that just happened. So that that's a really interesting detail and, and one that I don't think we've actually covered uh, before. So I appreciate you bringing that perspective. Um, I will say just as like a general matter, you know, when, when a client is getting sentenced, you know, we get the probation recommendation and, and probation will go through and they're, they're ostensibly this objective third party who's not like, you know, vested with the the prosecution or the defense or whatever, but like, we all know they're cops (laughs) and, um, we occasionally get these reports which follow our clients to prison and have an impact on their living conditions in prison. Um, And they'll say like, oh, well, this guy's been to prison before, so only going to have a moderate impact on him and his, you know, five-year-old child or whatever. Again, I'm just speaking in generalities here. And I object every single time. Like, going to prison is a major impact on anybody and anybody that they're related to full stop. And it, and it disgusts me when, um, I see the probation department try and say like, ah, it's fine. You know, it's a couple extra months or days or years. There's so you're, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's so many people who, you know, get really desensitized to that aspect of it, you know, especially when your your job is to sit on a calendar and literally recommend pri- prison sentences for, you know, 5, 10, 20 people day in and day out. Like, it becomes really easy to say, well, there's really not a big significance between a recommendation of four years or six years or eight years, you know, it's all relatively close in time. And, and, Every day matters to these people. So, you know, Tom, I want to get into it as we start to kind of wrap up into the show. You know, um, obviously, this has been 
a, a unique episode and I'm really glad that you've been able to bring us this type of perspectives with, with the huge charges of attempted murders. We've never had talk discussions about, you know, two trials. Um, and, and, you know, at the end of the second trial, you know, we, we didn't get the, the just results. I'm, I'm, I'm curious when, when we had the opportunity to, uh, for you to do a trial breakdown, you know, what was the significance of bringing this case to our box to, you know, highlight what was the just result that you really wanted you to, to share this story? So, um, the case just came back on appeal, which, um, so, you know, client gets convicted, I file my notice of appeal. And for me, like my, my job is basically done. Like my client will get, um, appointed, um, appellate counsel. Well, not only has the gang law changed, like, um, in California, uh, are, are you based in California? Yes. So you, you know, um, and AB, uh, Assembly Bill 333, um, changed some of the gang laws, um, and the appellate court, they not only said that the, that the conviction in this trial, um, now the, the sentence is not final because it's still on appeal, and when, when someone's sentence is not final because uh, it's still on appeal, they can take advantage of changes in the law that benefit them. Um, they can they can go back to the trial court for resentencing. Um, <clears throat> so, but in this case, the appellate court said, not only does the evidence in this case meet the new gang standards, which normally like the flip side of that coin is that the district attorney would get a chance to introduce new gang evidence to keep that gang conviction in place. They, they said it didn't meet the old standard where like basically a cop could just show up and be like, yeah, he's a gang member. And like, that was it. The court pointed out why it's important to make a very, you know, uh, good, record when you're in trial like no gang colors no um no one shouted a gang name like the district attorney's argument was that well shooting what benefits the gang by benefiting um the reputation of the gang and it benefits the gang member by giving them status within the gang and the appellate court came back and said it does not benefit the gang when nobody knows gang is involved in this crime. Who am I going to be afraid of? They don't shout, you know, whatever the gang member name is or, or uh, display colors or gang signs. Um, there's no, there's no reputational benefit, which is one of the things that the, the law changed. Um, it didn't commonly benefit the gang. And essentially just wasn't shown to be a gang related crime. It was like more of a road, road rage incident. So the appellate court is sending it back saying, not only did you fall on your face with the new higher gang standards, but you didn't even meet the lower ones, which really made me feel good. In my mind, the DA gets to eat their words about, oh, well, I'm the experienced gang prosecutor. I know better than 
the, you know, three to four other members of my office who rejected this case before me. He's like, well, maybe they, maybe they knew things a little better than, than you did. So it's coming back. Gang stuff. dismissed Because the firearm allegation based on it being a gang case that falls away too. So it's a good like 40-ish years or something or like off of the 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 final judgment. And I, I have to sit down and do the math and and of course the resentencing hasn't happened yet. Well and I'm wondering does does he not potentially have a claim for a whole new trial then if or I guess that gang they didn't necessarily say that the gang stuff that came in was inadmissible it just wasn't enough to meet the threshold. Correct. So his his gang ties would always come in to to the trial cuz I was wondering cuz I would think that that would have a huge impact on the on a retrial again on a third case if they weren't able to then also say like the whole time he's a gang member because obviously that's going to inflame the passion of a jury. I think that um think that you are correct that it would definitely make the trial um go a different way um but that's not going to be an option for him they didn't disturb the underlying like attempt murder i should say that they the jury did not convict him of the firearm allegation where it's um where it results in great bodily injury which is the the highest triad for that because the graze of the hand is just is just not gbi so anyway, a good um, 40-ish years are the, coming off the sentence here whenever, whenever he comes back to court in a few weeks. Well, Tom, I think that that's not a small milestone. You know, like we just talked about every day, second, hour that someone is essentially, unfortunately sent to prison is just not necessarily too long if there's convictions, but it, there's impacts that go around. And our jobs as public defenders, I think, in our community, we understand the significance of small wins, especially when the deck is always stacked against us. Not everything has to be a home run. There are victories in that. And, you know, like you indicated, he's he's a younger guy. And so the 40 years coming off uh, ha- allows him to, what I would assume, potentially see the light of day again. I think he will. I think I think he'll at least have that possibility, which is huge. And that's huge. And that's huge. So that's that's no small victory and you know obviously we love to hear acquittals in 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 this podcast, but it also goes to shows that our jobs are are so much more and we really highlight even the little victories. And and that's what this case was and it was really impactful and I'm really glad that you came and and gave us your time. In in general, you know, what would you say is the significance of, of taking matters to the box to to speak up against adversity? It's so important on a number of levels. By the time you get to trial, your client has been you know, slandered by the DA at a bail hearing, um, held to answer at a preliminary hearing, like it's finally their time to speak. And so it's, it's significant for them to be able to get up and say, no, 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 like now it's my turn. Like you, you've arrested me, you've charged me, you know, you've painted me as this horrible person. You've probably blasted my face out on like social media saying like, oh, look, look at this awful person who got arrested for thus and so. And 
no, like now, now it's my turn. Now I get, now I get to say my side of the story and significant. Um, that's one of my like favorite things about going to trial is like just finally being able to fight back, you know, don't get me wrong. You have pretrial motions and stuff, but like when it comes down to it, the trial, um, it's for us. Like it's for the defense. It's for the defendant. And really funny to hear you. Sometimes you hear lay people say like, Oh, you know, Oh, like there, there, uh, there aren't enough trials or like too many plea deals. And it's like, man, you got it back. Like the DA wants a plea deal like that. That's easy for them. Like they hardly ever have to work for a conviction and, you know, to, to make them work for it, to like hold their feet to the fire that way. And very oftentimes with the overcharging that they do in my jurisdiction, like my office wins way more than same here. We same here. Reasonable right to like, <laughs> I, I loved all of that. I, I really did. You know, it may be cliche to say, but we are the voice of the voiceless. Um, especially as public defenders and, and the vast majority of our clients who fall into, you know, the poor, the minorities, the mentally ill, the most vulnerable people of our community. So uh, I really love that passion. And I, and I felt that throughout this episode. And I just can't thank you enough again, Tom, for uh, giving us the time and sharing the short story. And thanks so much for coming on the show. members of the jury that's our show and i rest my case be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box if you're a fan of the show go ahead and subscribe you can also find us on social media at members of the jury if you want to be a guest or have any feedback be sure to email us at lhursty at members of the jury Information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.